0: Hey everyone, Paul here. I'm so excited to bring to you today a new guest who has not been on the podcast before, but he is a very old and very dear friend of mine, Dr. Jeremy Perigo. Jeremy serves as the director of campus ministries and worship arts at Dort University in Iowa. Before that, he spent six years as the head of theology, music, and worship programs at London School of Theology. Jeremy did his undergrad at Purdue. He went on to do a master's in practical theology at Regent University, and he did his doctor of worship studies at Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies. Jeremy is a specialist in global ecclesial practices, global evangelical liturgy and theology, Christian church in minority contexts, and issues affecting contemporary worship. Jeremy has spent quite a bit of time along with his wife and kids in Christian minority contexts across the Middle East. I want to bring Jeremy on today for a conversation about the points of connection between our guiding stories, that is the stories we believe to be true about God, reality, and our place in it all, and the points of connection between those guiding stories and liturgy, Christian worship, and the arts. Because there's a really interesting paradox in all of this. The story we believe shapes our arts, it shapes our practices of worship, and yet the arts and our practices of worship, our liturgy, can in turn end up reshaping our story, our guiding story that we believe to be true. So how does this work together? And what can we learn by opening ourselves up to learn from other Christians outside of our own unique tradition or denomination? And all of this stuff is deeply connected to the things we've been talking about in the Christ and Culture series. So if you've been listening over the last few weeks to that series, you're gonna find a bunch of relevant points of connection in today's conversation with Dr. Jeremy Perigo. Jeremy, I'm really glad that we got to do this together. It's been a long time coming. We've been talking about having you on for a conversation. We've had so many really great conversations over the years that I wish we could have recorded to share with other people. (laughs) I was trying to remember the first time I met you, and I think, if my recollection is correct, it was actually here in Minneapolis. At first I thought maybe it was when we did that recording at Kevin Prosh's place, but I actually think it was earlier. Um, We had been doing like a 24-7 prayer Thing here in the twin cities with your brother-in-law's church and the specific point of conversation i remember and i've shared this with people before um is we were having this meeting with other leaders house of prayer leaders and things like that in the twin cities and i remember you telling this story of how experiencing like the tangible presence of god felt like you were on the conveyor belt at a Krispy Kreme factory. (laughs) And there was just glaze being poured all over you. (laughs) I've told that to people I don't know how many times before, because, you know, unless you've experienced that, um, and there's a lot of people that come from different Christian traditions that don't have as strong of emphasis on these sorts of experiential phenomenon in worship. Unless you've experienced that, it's really hard— to hear something like that and go, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so I was thinking about that conversation, and I think it's really interesting. And I think my listeners would find it interesting, the parts of your story, Jeremy, where it's clear you have this these deep roots in the charismatic world, Pentecostal streams, and yet you are an academic theologian as well. Um, Someone told me the other day I was really weird for having both of those interests, and I had to agree with them. (laughs) So I'd love you to to share with, uh, you know, listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, a little bit about your background and story, especially, like, how do those different streams in the Christian tradition find their um, maybe holistic (laughs) expression in your life, Jeremy?
1: I mean, I think... Some of it goes back to my parents. I mean, I it could even get, get teary on that a, a little bit, but just thinking of their, their modeling of what it is to be a, a follower of Jesus. And I think my dad's a sheet metal worker. My mom was an educator, like did her master's in education, but they both encountered God's presence in a unique way in the late 70s, like so many other people their age did across, not just America, but across the world. And so I think a part of our DNA of, of a family was to study, to work hard, but also to know and love and experience God. And so they couldn't find, they were a Methodist in Wesleyan and couldn't find a space in their home churches after that spiritual encounter. And so um, they started going to go into the local Assemblies of God church, which like tripled, quadrupled in size in the late 70s and 80s and became a yeah mega church in our, our town And so they, I I grew up in that kind of Pentecostal charismatic experience and experiential worship, you know, baptism in the spirit, speaking in tongues, um, seeing God's miraculous hand. But my parents also put me in a Christian reform school. And so this was this unique tension um, or beautiful collision, however you want to want to see it, but like where on, on Sundays, Wednesday nights um, Yeah, there was preaching from God's word, but there was—I mean, our youth group would sing and worship and pray and pray for one another for an hour, hour and a half. Like we didn't do, we didn't do uh, ice breakers and games and pizza, pizza nights. Parties. Yeah, we didn't do pizza parties. Like our, I mean, we didn't have N64s all over the the youth room. It was literally get on your face and cry out to experience God and be transformed and be rude and, and and take that to your seat and. And at the same time, I was sitting in, you know, Christian, I know you've, you've taught in, in kind of, un, you know, I'm going to say, uh, you know, kindergarten through eighth grade, I was in a Christian school. And so that experience was, you know, learning about creational structure and how God's made his world, you know, his world and how you can see God's beauty in science and algebra. And so the, the beauty of particularly the Dutch Reformed tradition, like seeing that God's presence isn't just on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, but is also in math and in science and in um, basketball. And so I think those two pillars, I mean, at a very, I mean, this is kindergarten, you know, and that's wild. You really were
0: catching this at least implicitly, even if no one was explicitly saying it to you in this way, you were already making those connections from a young age. That would be different from my story. So this, I find this interesting.
1: Yeah, and and so for, I I only can see that clearly now. It was intuitive. It was the two two different ponds that I was swimming in simultaneously. And again, our our church started a school, but my parents kept me in the Christian Reform School. Like, and so I I loved that about their decision to help me have a a a broader Christian experience, even as a ten year old or twelve year old. That I wasn't just hope of okay, I'm I'm Christian Reformed, or okay, I'm assemblies of God. But um I can remember the first time I saw a Christian drink drink a beer after after basketball practice. And again, from the assemblies of God, Pentecostal, Methodist holiness perspective, like at church on Sundays to be no, those people are sinners, <laughs> like going to hell. I mean, literally, that was in the particularly in the 80s. But my my parents processing it with them are like. No, they're followers of jesus they they see things a little differently we don't we don't do that we've chosen to do that, but i I really appreciate kind of this intuitive framework that my parents gave gave me and that also my my education and my yeah and my and my church experience um fused together and that's i mean been that path until today I mean I'm at Dort University at a Christian reformed you know foundational um yeah, started by Dutch Reformed as a teaching college years ago, um, but also, you know, our our worship expressions are often very modern, and students are lifting their hands, and the spirits doing dynamic things in the lives of our our students too. And so, I love, I love that God's brought me on that journey for a, from an yeah from an
0: early age. That's really unique because I think a lot of people I talk to, Jeremy, and there's I find myself meeting more and more with people in their heading into their 20s in particular and they're coming out of places like YWAM or IHOP and they didn't have that um, as holistic affirmation of all the viable paths to knowledge of God and his working in the world so like for me that wasn't necessarily the case Um, I didn't have that explicitly or implicitly um, I certainly went to like a Christian school, but it was a ministry of my church, which was already charismatic and word of faith at that. And it took, uh, probably until like my college years, you know, to see that modeled in different people, like in Upton, right? I mean, I remember the first time, one of the very early conversations I had with Jason, I was asking him probably as a sophomore in college you know, because I think Jason was a guy that both of us, we saw model in the charismatic sphere, someone that was still like reading theology, talking and like having relationships with Roman Catholics. And, and I remember early on asking, you know, Jason, well, what are, you, what are you reading? What do you recommend? And, you know, I'm a sophomore in college <laughs> and, you know, very much into the third wave charismatic stuff at the time. And he, he recommended I pick up Kierkegaard. which is not some, that's not easy entry point reading, but it was great, really transformational. But I I, I hadn't seen a lot of other people that were like that. And so when I talk to people that are kind of moving, um, have grown up in the charismatic and Pentecostal streams, and they're, it's not even so much deconstructing, though, that's the case for some people. It may be more of like, an expansion like it was for me, Jeremy, you know, I think of those prayer room sets that we would do together and they were, you know, you take two hour blocks of time of contemplation and meditation and you're doing like what you, you know, we talk about in those circles, crying out to the Lord, which is something, you know, we can use as a term and we both get it, but most people are like, what are you talking about? Um. And what that created in me was a desire to know God in all the available channels. And I do encounter people that are experiencing that and they don't really, they often don't know where to begin. Or maybe they even experience like a sense of alienation in their own communities that don't affirm that. I mean, do you even have like any affirmations to those people who are maybe in, let's take, and this isn't to... um like pigeonhole these kinds of churches, but let's just take like a typical kind of like Bethel Redding church model. And someone's in that sort of uh, community and they're like kind of finding themselves interested in Christian history, theology outside of their tradition, and they don't know where to begin. And they're not finding others necessarily in their community that are wanting to go after that too. Like you play a pastoral yeah, I mean, role. What do you, what do you ta- what do you tell those people? Literally I, Right before
1: COVID, I went to David's tent in San uh, San Diego area, and there was a Bethel student who, uh, British background, and has a passion to do a theology degree, and I sat there with him. I think he was uh, afraid to say that, Um, like within his context, because there has been a stigma, and maybe not Bethel, but just even bigger than that, a stigma of you know, cemetery, or, you you know, instead of seminary, seminary, or um, there's this, this push against worshiping God with our mind. Um, instead, we worship with our spirit, our emotions. And so I, what I did is sh- shared a few <laughs> scriptures with them. I mean, against coming to something where we, we all land is our, our source of knowledge of life, coming to scripture and, and saying, we're just like that. We're called to worship him with everything, with, Body, mind, spirit, soul, and 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 then simply like encouraged him in the need, um like to that that the study of God is an act of worship. Like theology is an act of of worship. Um, it's an act of love, an act of devotion. And I think there are academic theologians who study theology for other other reasons to to deconstruct, to tear down, to um yeah, to have as a, a, a PhD as a marker of their identity Definitely. to lord it over others to get a job, although there's not a lot of jobs in theology full time in your tracks. Good luck with that, PhD students. God bless you. But um the the same thing with with, with him in particular, like just to help open his mind in a sense, again, using like the, the charismatic language, I mean like. He was called to pioneer this like he was like he has that calling and to to kind of pave a new a new path and so i think yeah coming to coming to scripture for those in that tradition but also highlighting that uh craig keener's book's really helpful on this the mind of the spirit like that paul talks about that like that yeah the spirit cannot the spirit also engage in our mind is that the only spectrum of human experience where the spirit can't connect and the reality is no god's active in our minds he's the creator of that and we get the opportunity to study what we love and who we love and that's the study of the study of god and and so i think yeah giving going back to scripture ski, getting some, some ideas, but then also it's what I'm trying to model in my, my own life too, that like, it's, it's good to continually read and experience things from other Christian traditions and, and gain that understanding. And so um I think you, you, you triggered me a little bit when you, when you first were opening this question, I think one of the things is there are pendulums that in the church, and particularly in our own experience, so I, think, you know, those who have grown up, I've seen so many in word of faith or, or non-denominational, have quickly shifted to Anglicanism or, or kind of even orthodoxy. Some of our mutual friends have, yeah. have become Orthodox, and they're not very liturgical. Grow up in that, yeah. And then you know, there's others that have, have grown in their care for for the poor and have kind of left that charismatic experience. And I guess for me, it's. I, Isn't Christianity as we see in Scripture and seen, again, preached through the ages, there's been lots of problems, but isn't it a holistic perspective of like, yes, God's the God of our emotions. We experience the Spirit in tangible and powerful ways that should transform us and challenge us and convict us. Isn't it also the the spirit who's active as we preach the word of the of God every Sunday? And also, isn't the spirit active as we're loving widows and and changing systems, government? And isn't yeah, God also active as my plumber studies how to, to get the stuff out of my toilet, out of my house somewhere else, like. And again, I think in some of our traditions, we now only see, well, God's only active in the poor and kind of liberation theology, or God's only active in the proclamation of of the gospel, the kind of evangelical and even reformed tradition. God's only practice, you know, God's only prayer when we play E minor, C, G, and D for for 30 or 40 minutes and say, come Holy Spirit. And, and I guess the reality is, is, This is the Spirit of God who's hovering over all creation. And this is the Christ who is bringing all things to himself. Mm.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of books that come to mind that have helped me maybe detox from thinking inherently. And you've lived in other places of the world, so maybe you could affirm this or deny this better than I can, Jeremy. But it does seem like part of the liturgy of american politics with our two-party system tends to create in americans this either or sense i mean politics you know this is like new begin and charles taylor in the, the the vacuum of the death of god right we 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 see politics step into the top of the religious hierarchy So, so much of, I feel like uh, the American mindset is you're in this team or you're in that team. And unlike many other like Western democracies that have like multiple viable parties with more nuanced positions, you're like one or the other. And I've, I've wondered how much that's even shaped the way we engage with different Christian traditions as to, I think back to my, I mean, even as I got into theology, maybe, you know, 20 years ago, started getting more interested in it. Part of it I still felt in hindsight as I look back on it was it was almost like a quasi-culture war motive. Like I wanted to own the Calvinists, you know. So I got I got all my Greg Boyd books and you know, my John Wesley quotes, and so much of it was to affirm my rightness. Now I think God was still even working in that. Um, But there's been a couple of books that I think are theologians that have helped me maybe take a little bit more of what you're recommending. I think of Richard Foster's Streams of Living Water. It's a book I've referenced multiple times in this podcast where Foster affirms that we can see, even in the life of Christ, these different streams in the Christian tradition. And he breaks them down, not in terms of denominations, but in particular emphases, like the contemplative stream, the charismatic stream, the holiness stream, the evangelical stream, and that in each of these, it's not like, you know, one ring to rule them all sort of deal here, but we actually have, when we're knitted together, like the biblical language of the body of Christ, we are actually strengthening each other and we can have points of emphasis that might be different than other traditions. I also think of J.W. McClendon, who was more of an Anabaptist theologian. I think he's still living in his book, Witness. Um, it's a sort of theology of culture. And he's got this section where he talks about, you know, Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17, that we would all be one, even as he and the father are one and how often that has been interpreted as what we need to do is we need to find the singular stream that we can trace all the way back to the apostles that was like, you know, uncorrupted, you know, and his arguments like, good luck with that. It's not going to happen, but maybe instead what we should consider is that each of us come from different convictional locations that are shaped by our culture and the subcultures we inhabit. In those convictional locations, if we could kind of picture ourselves climbing up a mountain and we look out on a valley, we have to confess that we see things from that location which Might be a really good spot, but it's still limited, right? And maybe instead what we need to do is we need to call out to that Christian brother or sister that's on a mountain just across the valley. And you might not be able to see that there's deer playing in that valley or something from your vantage point, but they can see that. So instead of going like, it's my tribe, it's like, well, what maybe do you bring to the table? It seems like you're kind of affirming that perspective. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think
1: so. I mean, it, it both helps us construct our, yeah, our 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 theologies, but it also helps us critique our theologies too. Like by looking at other brothers and sisters. I mean, I can you can think of huge topics that are in the New Testament, like the kingdom of God. But if you buy, you know, any systematic book written before maybe the 1950s or 60s systematic theologies, you'll find a page or two about the kingdom of God. Where again, it's one of those those narratives that pulls all of Scripture together, particularly the life, teaching, ministry of of Jesus. And I think you know, there's a number of global theologians who who helped shape. our our modern understanding of of things like the kingdom of God, too, that we're just completely missing from seminary training, from systematic theology in so many places. And, and I think that's, I mean, again, that's just an illustration to say that, in a sense, it's not just, oh, if I just add a little Anglicanism here, if I just, oh, I kind of like, which is, again, a very kind of contemporary spirituality that particularly Westerners do. Well, I can add some yoga here, add some mindfulness here. Uh, Like, I like going to, I like listening to Hillsong music or something like that. And that's my, my spiritual journey. But it's, it's really also allowing the voices of the church throughout all time and place to Critique and convict us, and their their understanding of God and God's word and what the church is, and I think that's that's something very powerful, particularly for you know modern debates too that are that come up really quick where cultural and human sexuality has made radical shifts in in a decade I know you posted just around things around technology like to be able to get off the earth and to get into space in just a few decades is a a whole cultural shift and to to bring those those challenges, again, back to scripture, but also back to the church of all places and all times. We have all these great thinkers, men and women, church fathers, church mothers um, from different parts of the world that can allow us to to, to think and
0: discern, pass forward. This really gets to your area of expertise, Jeremy, because it's not just in like Theological and spiritual formation doesn't just happen as we read books or listen to podcasts. In fact, that's probably a very narrow sliver. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with Jonathan Haidt's uh, elephant and the rider metaphor, um, where you know the rider on the elephant might be our irrational brain, the prefrontal cortex, you know, but the elephant is that uh, that more unconscious, or I should say, subconscious forces that drive us and compel us. And liturgy, the practices of worship and doxology, uh, aesthetics that we consume and bring into us, this narrative, the world of narrative that we immerse ourselves in. Can oftentimes affect the elephant much more than the rider. So I'm really curious to pick your brain a little bit about the role in particular of arts and the muse and music and helping us to maybe confront some of the ways we have interpreted God's story that might have been driven more by other. Cultural liturgy. So, I think of one example a few years ago, a friend of mine, um, you know, I taught for a while in an academic setting too. And in many cases in Christian education, that is primarily a sphere for those that have come from the more reformed traditions, unless you're in a Catholic school, right? Um, Because that has been a deep value of, you know, you're in a Dutch reform setting now. That's been a deep value. And it's an incredible blessing and contribution to church. So, I think of a friend of mine, Dustin, if Dustin's listening a colleague of mine and I had been doing some teaching on on musical worship and and liturgy and I had really been emphasizing like my charismatic inclinations towards spontaneity allowing for individual expression right like you know this Jeremy so much of um Charismatic conference world, um, the emphasis on spontaneity, even some of the things that I look back on and what I was teaching people about. You know, you bring your own song to the Lord, bring your own song to the Lord. Let's get off the page from singing all together so that you can cultivate your own individual language of communion with God. And there's a lot of value in that. But what he really pushed me on, and I was really grateful for this critique. He said, Paul, oftentimes it sounds like what you're really doing is just affirming American individualism. And maybe you need to consider more the collective and community aspects of worship. And that was a really good critique because it made me aware of perhaps that I had been assuming this in this deep sense. Of what's really most valuable is individual connection with God, individual language, individual creativity, and I hadn't been maybe aware of cultural forces, cultural liturgies that were affirming that to be true, and in, and in evaluating that up against the biblical narrative, I might have been out of balance on that. So, can you talk for a little bit about maybe some of these, these forces that maybe shape. Evangelical liturgy, um, and maybe some of the cultural liturgies that we find ourselves in that might shape us as well in different directions. That you might go, hey, you know, we might need to be aware of some of these forces that they might not be in keeping with the kingdom of God. They could be blind spots in the way we worship and the way we practice and celebrate the arts.
1: Yeah, uh, so many great. Great thoughts come to mind. I mean, one is that I think the particularly from the early revivals, kind of frontier revivals in the US, till I might say like 1970s, 1980s, like the primary focus of, again, this is a large, I'm painting broad, broad strokes, but the primary focus of so much evangelical or free church, you know, low church. Worship in America was about seeing individual people give a commitment to Christ. Individual decisions. Yeah. An individual, you know, that was the means of grace. Yeah. And so Lester Ruth at Duke and others trace that to Charles Finney's revivalism and how that wasn't a, a pastor. He was an evangelist, but how, how his methods, how his structure, um, how their song choices impacted the liturgy of and the American evangelical church and so if that becomes the primary focus then everything you know if 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 the the moment Within the service, where we expect the spirit to be moving, is as people lift their hand, are convicted, lift their hands and come forward and receive assurance of salvation, and also fill out a fill out a, a card. Like then the songs, the prayers, the dramas, the the sermons all point to that moment. Um, I think, yeah, that's a pretty helpful focal point to kind of view. American evangelical worship for 200 years. Again, there's lots of diversity within that. Yeah, uh, but
0: what do you think undergirded that assumption? You know, in like reflecting on that, nobody, I didn't think of anybody using, I never heard anybody use this language, but the, the altar call moment, the individual uh, decision moment was really, and then in charismatic context, the linking of that with musical expression That was really like the chief sacrament. You know, if we Uh think about sacraments as means of grace, like how do we Uh experience the union of the divine with the human? What is the thing that brings those two heaven and earth into collision and to a degree Uh of synthesis and unity that is like the means of grace. What was it that undergirded that assumption that what's most important is for you as an individual to make a decision you know, to follow Jesus? And I, I think there's a lot of value and truth to that. We certainly see that in the Gospels. So like, maybe you could make a devil's advocate case for why that was the situation yeah. and maybe why it needs some I, counterbalance.
1: I, I, I think, again, the American frontiers were
0: not not pretty
1: places like like we think society's b- bad now but again i mean racism ill treatment of of women theft you know alcoholism at, at an all high level like people men didn't have jobs at like so i think society was not in a good place and so i think one like seeing people's lives dramatically transformed by hearing about the death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ and how that can transform you is powerful. I mean, again, that's why we had great awakenings that particularly in America has shifted culture, but even other parts of the world, India had awakenings, you know, and the, the turn of the 20th century too. And now still all over the world, there's, there's as, as people proclaim that good news, People's lives are transformed, so I think that's that's one. And again, as you as you pointed, just, just there's lots of places in in scripture. Absolutely, though, I would say the the idea of humanism and modernism are at play there, of of placing the value on the individual, you know, individual liberties, um, a human created. Uh, by the hand of God. Again, the the early Renaissance was a very theological idea. It wasn't humanism apart from God. It was humanism as God's pinnacle creation. I mean, go to Florence and see David, you know, it's, I mean, he's chiseled. He looks amazing. He looks like the perfect man, what I wish I could be someday. <laughs> and it's so, I think, though, is, is that beginning to take root in culture it, it does reduce the role of community, um, I think, it too, in terms of workplace and industrialization. I mean, all of society has, particularly in, in the West, has as, as it's modernized, has become more about me, more about you, more about, yeah. And I think that's, that's where the church in some places during this time stood up and say, well, what about community? Um, even in the seventies and eighties you saw some charismatic groups and other groups like let's get rid of everything let's let's leave this kind of individual experience and let's let's live together in, in community let's become monks um and and not have bank accounts and and again I think that's that pendulum maybe swinging a little too, a little too far and i've friends and family who were involved in that. And some of that was really toxic, but they also speak of those times in such a, a beautiful way because it was the body of Christ, not just a hand, not just a head, not just an ear, not just a kidney, like, but the entire body of Christ living, working and on, on mission together. And so I think that, that shifts worship and worship in those contexts were much more resonant with First Corinthians and other part where everyone brings something to share. And and it it wasn't just about that altar, altar call experience and, and getting a, a, a you know a salvation card at the end, but like that, that experience was was within community. And so I think again, those are large brush strokes, but there was there's a number of cultural factors that are at play. But I think it is also lives are transformed as as the gospel is proclaimed as the story of Jesus is, is proclaimed um, and so there is something yeah
0: the spirit is at work as as that's happening how does this happen in particular via the arts so maybe we'll get back to kind of touching on that elephant and the rider metaphor um talk a little bit about how the arts and Habitual spiritual practices shape us in ways that might be even more profound and more transformative than the practice of just reading a book, a great theology book, or the practice of listening to a sermon, which is worship as well. It is also a a spiritual formation practice. But talk a little bit more about the domain that you specifically specialize in, Jeremy, and that's in music, the arts. I, I, I mean, I think. Protestants have had a rocky
1: relationship with the arts. I mean, it is, yeah, at, at the Reformation, some of those reformers were tearing down icons, you know, for some for good reasons, probably, and and for pastoral reasons within their own context of of worship or adoration of those icons or scraping off the paint and drinking it to believe they'd be healed. And again, I could see a pastor. If if my church is doing that, I could see a, a pastoral decision to say, hey, let's let's not do that. But I think very word-centered, and as I say word-centered, I'm not talking primarily about Scripture because actually Scripture is filled with prose and, I mean, these beautiful passages, John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, these these passages that pretty much our faith rest upon as Christ is fully God, fully man, like, those are, it's poetry. (laughs) It's, it's not, It's not this very didactic point A, point B, point C. It's tension of light, one with God, doesn't consider himself one, death, death on the cross, exalted to the highest place, name above all names, Jesus is Yahweh, but he's also one with the Father. Like Those are things that only some of our theological concepts, I think, can only be understood or are best understood through art forms. And so I think again, Scripture itself utilizes those forms to help explore who God is, to teach also who God is. And so I think that's something that, yeah, particularly over the last few decades within the Protestant movement, we've learned from our Orthodox Roman Catholic brothers and sisters who have been teaching theological aesthetics for more than a millennia. Like, and I think more and more we're becoming more aware of. That the arts aren't just a way to share the gospel, which is an important function of the arts, aren't just a way to preach, to get people saved, but are actually an important way that we can know God, can
0: explore Mm -hmm. who God is. That other way seems more like an advertisement. Yeah, you know, I I feel like that may have been the thing, um, you know, as an evangelical kid in the '80s and '90s, in particular, that so much of Christian art, um, it, the line, you know, John Mark McMillan wrestles with this quite a bit, like the line between art and propaganda, you know, and what is that line? Um, you should have a chat with John Mark about that sometime, <laughs> but I I feel like when you talk about it in those terms that. It's the difference between like a, a jingle on a commercial that's trying to sell you a Buick and like some really compelling work of music that fills you with awe and wonder. When I hear the the jingle for whatever advertisement, I, I'm not filled with wonder and awe. I'm not perhaps even lured into a sense of I want to explore the transcendent. Uh, I very much feel like it is something that's in service of some lesser value, ideal, or even at worst, an idol. And it seemed like a a lot of, you know, I guess, again, in evangelical culture, the primary art emphasis has been musical expression, right? I felt like so much of that was, again, maybe not even uh, thoughtfully reflected upon, and how this is actually—it feels a little bit like a sales pitch. Like, we're using music as in a utilitarian way um, to sell somebody on an idea of Jesus, or an oftentimes, like, in actual church practice settings, like it's the warm-up for the sermon, you know? Yeah. Um, how do you see that as—I mean, it sounds like you see that as dysfunctional or at the very least— um, not a full picture of the true purpose of aesthetics. Yeah. I think it, it resonates
1: with that theology of that the primary expression of the church is to get individuals saved, which that is a huge expression of the church. I'm that's still a huge passion of mine. That's why I've lived in parts of the world where the church doesn't exist to help people know and meet Jesus. Like, at the same time, I mean again, just back to scripture. Like, there's a lot happening in the lives of the disciples. Like, yes, they they do get saved, they do get their their ticket to heaven, but there's a lot, a lot of things to do on the earth. <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of people to 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 connect with. There's societies to be built, there's gardens to be planted. Like, and so I think that's where. Our our music or our, our evangelical aesthetic or yeah even the Protestant aesthetics has sometimes fallen short where it is yeah you said advertisement or very utilitarian it's mainly one part of the narrative of God a big big part of it which is good we don't want to lose that and that's why it's it's been quickly transferred to other cultures and has has fueled revival and renewal movements because it's a it's a huge part but also it's it's then how should we live? The kind of question of, okay, my life is transformed, but now what should I do? And I think that's where a broader view of the arts can be so helpful. Like how, when I'm when I'm feeling depressed and down, that doesn't fit my, I'm in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. It doesn't fit that, song aesthetic since jesus christ came in changed my heart from sin did you know when i'm in right out right up well no i'm not i'm i'm down some days i'm i yeah i need to draw from the psalms and david and other writers experiences i need to draw from gethsemane sometimes of jesus's own prayers and so i think there's where the arts can fuel. This the, the interesting thing. There's a there's a monograph. Um, April Stace wrote this um, on, particularly in the early two thousands, churches began adopting songs from outside of the Christian kind of CCli and be, begin drawing, you know, bringing in a Dylan song because so much of that music um, lacked. kind of emotive depth you're talking about it it was inauthentic to the human experience even the christian human experience yes so they began appropriating songs often within a sermon before a sermon after a sermon and this was
0: again true across denominations um wasn't just just a seeker friendly thing to be like hey we're opening up with this to show you i mean i I don't mean to be disparaging of that but you know what i mean it wasn't just again as a sales pitch to be like hey we're a cool church There were definitely, I thought of times, I mean, I've definitely, I've brought in stuff in my days. I mean, Adam Cates and I, I just stumbled upon an old recording of us doing a David Gray tune. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've pulled in Pearl Jam tunes and U2 that, I mean, I still think one of the best songs of faith is U2's Still, I Haven't, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For.
1: Yeah. It's a song of lament.
0: It's honest.
1: Yeah and i think that that was where again particularly 80s 90s early 2000s like pastors liturgists church leaders were starting to think more about how can we show the the depth within scripture within the church tradition within human experience but falling short within you know songs that were purely adorational or purely you know proclamational um and so they yeah began to appropriate songs from others and again now you're seeing huge movements um even things like you know we've mentioned hillstone bethel that will have maverick city that'll have songs that have moments of lament or moments of of pain um and so i think even some of that has shifted at, and part of it i think is as the the evangelical or the protestant church has begun to engage more with the arts and with aesthetics and and being more thoughtful that we don't just need kind of Walt Disney World worship. You know, I don't know if you've been to Walt Disney World, yep. but the movies always start with pain, like a death of someone and then have that upswing. But the parks are always super happy. A little bit of Chick-fil-A, like, you know, when, when they the
0: gave me the veneer wrong... of happiness that's covering up yeah. a deep river yeah. of anguish.
1: <laughs> you know, particularly during COVID, I know those chick fil like, those lines were like 2 hours long and i was in the twin cities during some of that and like and they'd mess up my fries and give me give me a, an unsweet tea instead of sweet tea and i have to go back and again they just have that happy smile and again i as a customer i love that for for 2 minutes or 5 minutes you know, Disney World's the same thing. Like their, their, their cast members are always smile. I mean, you can have your irate toddler who just got hit by somebody and you can be screaming at a cast member, but they're have a magical day. And I think particularly, yeah, the seventies, eighties, our evangelical aesthetic has been that kind of Walt Disney, everything's awesome. Um, and that's just not true like it's not it's not true within the narrative it's not true within church history it's, it's not true in my own with the reality my of life. our
0: experiences
1: it's not true with what's coming out in the media about some of those churches and what was happening and again hope is key Escal- eschatological hope for the people of god is key that jesus will return and make all things new and is doing that now but but often we were attempting to give a, a really trite psychological hope that just became so inauthentic um, that I think a lot of people left the church. Like there, it was that, 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 that hope was so inauthentic. Um, it felt good. And it just wasn't, again, it wasn't true. If I can use that word on your podcast, it wasn't true. It's, it wasn't there there's there is a cross and a resurrection there is the inauguration of the kingdom and the coming kingdom and we're waging war in the midst of that now and seeing glimpses of the kingdom and appetizers of what god's doing of the feast to come but it's still it's still a taste a foretaste and so i think that broader view of who god is in that those tensions can be so Powerfully explored in song, and visual art, and dance, in a way that a, a book, you know, or even yeah, sermons, I mean, as an art form can, can pull those, those tensions so clearly, um, but in a way that, yes, yeah, some just just simple language maybe can't do but artistic forms have an ability to hold some of those huge um, things in tension. We've been watching, -watching rewatching Daredevil on Netflix because with all the Marvel stuff, I don't know that it's going to be there forever. I don't know what what will end up happening. And and I mean, that's one of those some of those conversations. I know you've watched this. We've talked about this before, but some of those conversations between Daredevil and the Punisher are wrestling with what's justice or, or yeah. daredevil and his priest, you know, Matt Murdock and his priest wrestling with what is Satan? What is the devil? And again, to, to see that in an artistic form, like I could read that in my systematic theology. In fact, that's, I'm sure they're drawing from a number of theological sources, but to see the pain stuck within a larger story and to see that wrestling like is, is a way that Angela and I, as we've been watching that are like, wow this is some of the best preaching on those two issues on what is the devil and what 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 does justice and mercy look like uh, that i've seen in my whole whole life
0: yeah and those narratives again as we're storied creatures narratives we have this way of making implicit connections that connect with the elephant even if it's kind of slipping past the goalie the rider there might not be picking it all up. I mean, there is some truth to those old, you know, youth pastor notions of you better kill your TV, be really conscientious of what you're bringing in into you, because the stories we consume do have a way of hacking our value system. And I think that's one of the things that's been really interesting about uh, the, the age of storytelling that we live in now, the aesthetics of storytelling. That Has happened especially in the last couple of decades. There's a book called, um, oh, I'm gonna blank on the author's name, Real Spirituality, but R E E L. Um, I think the author's last name is Johnson, but he kind of, and I've talked about this before, but I think it's Todd,
1: Todd, Todd Johnson at yeah, uh, the that, Brim that Center. Could,
0: yeah, that could be it. Yeah, um, he makes an interesting case without necessarily doing you know scientific data-driven study of this, but he brings up an interesting question about whether or not the advent of video stores, blockbuster video, you know, the first video stores, we also do see correlation. This doesn't mean causation, but we do see a correlative connection between declining church attendance and the increase of video stores. Now, there's no video stores anymore. We have much more access to these stories. It's interesting to me that the possibility of that exists where people are getting stories, guiding stories in the arts and in this very aesthetic form of storytelling in, in, in an incredible, incredible medium of visual arts, whether it's watching a, a series on Netflix or going to a movie theater, which you know I haven't done in quite some time, um, but those have a way of maybe producing much more of a theological transformation of us for better or worse at times than the consumption of a sermon. And then we, we, we throw in the factor of um, the amount of time that we give to a discipline. You know, if we want to get Aristotelian on this, we get change, we can change our character and virtue virtues. Aristotle argues through the process of habituation, which for mm-hmm. Aristotle was you follow a moral exemplar You do what they do, and if you repeatedly do that, right? I mean, this is James K. Smith's argument, and you are what you love. You can transform your loves by the thing that you do over and over again, and this has both positive and negative repercussions for like local pastors who are going, I'm preaching my guts out for maybe 30 minutes or, in some traditions, an hour on a (laughs) Sunday, but then people are going home. And they're consuming all sorts of stories and aesthetics, which are really producing the transformation. Hopefully the sermon does something to guide them in what they're consuming. Um, I, I'm just curious as to how church communities, or Chris, Christian institutions like the one you work at, Jeremy, can help people navigate like aesthetics outside of Christian worship in a way that's thoughtful it helps them do theological evaluation like you're doing it when you and angela are watching you're watching with that rider activated going okay where are points of agreement and disagreement with what we believe is the true story of the world but not everybody does that as they are whether they're in an art gallery they're listening to music or they're watching a film How do you do this in Christian institutions in a way that helps people interact and see that Christ is active in our culture to kind of move away from that Christ against culture model, but not to be on the other ditch of Niebuhr's Christ of culture, where we just see, well, every story that's being told in the world outside of the church is a true story and we mindlessly consume it. How do you maybe help people navigate those I mean,
1: one, it's going to sound so simple, but I mean, it it even draws on what you said about Jamie Smith, like regular corporate worship. Yes. like It's so, it sounds so trite, so simple. It sounds what every pastor has been trying to get his his or her congregation to do for decades. Come to church, hear from God's word, pray. And yeah. I, I, what, I, what I loved seeing, one of the things I loved seeing in a number of churches who were non-denom charismatic during COVID is that they began kind of the daily hours. So they're not a, an Anglican, they're not a monastic community, but you know, pastors who are probably wondering what they're going to do with their time because you know, for at least a few weeks or a few months, they weren't meeting counseling face-to-face things like that and started doing kind of devotions or noon worship or evening prayer. And you even see this with a number of places like Upper Room. You mentioned Adam Cates, Big House Church, um, New Life that I'm connected with in Virginia Beach. Like they're instead of just Sunday, and even though Sunday attendance may go up and down, they're starting to essentially add things like what would be called Vespers or Evensong or Morning Prayer. And so in a sense like immersing them themselves their community in the story of god through prayer through song through devotions through creative artistic ways like and i think there's something about spending quality time immersed in god's story with people that are maybe slightly different than you like but but can can gather around that idea and so, I, again, that's such a basic answer no, it's not, in, in the beginning, but, but, <laughs> but I think it's, it's quite profound. And you see that, again, with, with church attendance on Sundays in so many communities, particularly in America, that, you know, a regular attender is now, I think, once a month, one pastor. Yeah, one whole, to two me, times yeah. a month. Yeah. And again, I'm living in Sioux Center, Iowa, where sixty-seven percent go to church every Sunday. So I'm in a a unique place now. Um the UK, I think it was under ten percent when we lived lived there. I mean in Turkey there was only we lived there, there there's only one church within an eight-hour drive. So I mean everyone went as much as they could. And so I think I think one is offering more times to, to participate in in the liturgy, in worship, in in experiencing the the arts um, within a, a local community, singing together, um, gathering together, I think the the other is 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 things like this, like starting to talk about it, like recognizing like there is a role of of, of discernment that's needed before, as as we as individuals consume media and ideas and any kind of cultural artifacts we 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 need to think thoughtfully about those um and so yeah your this podcast is helpful with that other you know there's degrees now that you can even do that local churches you know, having a movie night and and then processing that movie, or having everybody watch thirty hours of of Daredevil over over six months, and then talking about the problem of e- evil and justice and and mercy. Um, again, certain churches, it's pretty vi- it is pretty violent. So, hashtag. I don't know if that one's yeah, yeah. Fly. No one, no one, no one under eighteen or right, something. Right, right. But, 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 yeah, seeing part of our role. one of my. My colleagues here, Justin Bailey, he's written on um, aesthetics as apologetics, um, just recently published last, about a year ago on IBP. Like one of the courses he teaches is theology of culture here. So our undergraduate students, I mean, it's packed, 40, 45 students. I went and sat on a lecture. I mean, he's, Having them look at things like Ted Lasso and The Good Place and, yeah, probably some of the things you were talking about with real spirituality. And instead of just consuming them to say, oh, that's funny or that production quality is cool, maybe we could bring that into our preaching, but to actually sit there and with the discernment that comes from the Spirit and sitting there with your Bible in hand and and your understanding of of who the church is called to be and in her yeah, in her best, to say, "Hmm, this is interesting. <laughs> like this may not reflect who God is, or this may be a redemptive analogy within culture that maybe highlights more than the last fifteen sermons I've I've heard yes, too." So yes, yes, that, that's the tension that's of it. Thing, yeah,
0: the tension. Of I think the beautiful him. thing. Yeah. Keep going, sorry. (laughs) No, 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 that's okay. That's the tension of we have to be oriented towards a true north star in Christ. We have to know Uh God's story well enough to be able to sift through when we hear other stories to be able to find the points of harmony and resonance. But I think it was Van Hooser that coined the expression, the latent church. We have to also affirm, especially, you know, this this is a Pentecostal affirmation. The Spirit's been poured out on all flesh. And Christ is at work in places that might be in the the extremes of culture that we go and like, ah, that's that there's there's nothing sacred happening there. And in some ways, there might be elements of a story that's told that has, like you're saying, a maybe a higher revelatory capacity than the last 10 to 15 sermons that we listen to. I was just driving when I drove the kids into school this morning and we'd been kind of taking the practice of me, like kind of summarizing the Bible, you know, just go through Genesis. And so we were just into the prophets. So I just kind of like, you know, we're not actually listening to it. I'm just doing a pastoral, I'm going to tell the narrative in a way that all the kids can understand. And we're talk. we got to the point of where, you know, the prophets warning to Israel had been, hey, you know, you need to, you guys are practicing like human sacrifice and stuff, like in the high places, you need to quit that. Because God will not tolerate bullies forever. And you guys are acting like bullies. And we were just talking about how um, even like the kids understand, Ryder said something to Justice. Ryder's seven years old. He said something to Justice a few weeks ago. It was kind of funny because he said, Justice, I don't really like superhero stories because I always know that the superhero is going to win in the end. And so we were talking a little bit about where does that affirmation come from? It's an eschatological claim. You know, so even with the kids in the car, I'm talking with about, well, you know, like they've all seen the Avengers movies, right? You know, why did it seem like the Avengers story couldn't just end with Thanos snapping his finger and killing off half the people in the galaxy? Why did it seem like this can't be the end of the story? It has to end with something true, good and beautiful. And then why does the medium by which that come about have to be someone mimicking, spoiler alert, (laughs) mimicking like a a Christ-like sacrifice and Tony Stark laying down his life for others. What is it about that story that when people think of heroism, it's the highest thing that they can think of? Now, certainly you could step back and go, well, you know, we have this general Judeo-Christian value system, you know, that's just implicit in our culture and that's the best we can borrow from. But I also think like we can look at stories like that and go... The degree in which this deeply resonates with me as something true, good, or beautiful is because it's at least in part in harmony with the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have to have that in Christian worship to be our barometer, to be our compass, whatever other metaphor you want to use, so that we can see that. But then there is there is times in which those stories in which God's at work outside of church culture or subculture— it has a way of highlighting things in the story that um, maybe make the story even more beautiful, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, even your your as we our earlier conversation about the focal point of you know American evangelical worship being individual salvation, again, which is a part of it. But as you as you were saying the Tony Stark analogy, like he Stark dies for. Not just the individual, of course, Piper's it probably in his mind, and his daughter, I can't think of her name, but the future Iron Girl woman, whatever. <laughs> the like he's dying for the cosmos, for the maybe the multiverse, like what his act of heroism is had had cosmic implications. And I think again, that's where we need to continually, Robert Weber, re- rehearse God's narrative, like the big story. Yes. And that big story hits me as an individual and should, and I'm drawn into that story. But also that big story is beyond just me getting a ticket to heaven. Like it is, that's a part of it. The afterlife is important to us as as humans and as Christians, but it's also about me being drawn into that story. So my vocation looks different. My parenting looks different. My Christian education looks looks different. Um, And I think that's where... Again, a a a fuller, a more holistic view of liturgy, worship, and the arts can can be really powerful for a community. As yes, we do want to see people's individual lives transform from light to dark, but also as they walk, what does it look like to walk in the light? Like it's it's not again that that old analogy from my childhood, you know, get saved and wait till Jesus comes. Like what I appreciated about assemblies of God, it's no go go change the world see the spirit active in 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 every part of the every part of the world and so i think those those analogies from culture as as we look at them resonate with at times parts of scripture and when it does those are times to kind of sit there thinking like what where does where you know, where is this beautiful whole True. Where is Christ at work reconciling all things to himself in this movie or in this conversation or in this piece of music? Um, Where is the tension of, of creation groaning in this, this moment or this cultural artifact? And that's what I think as followers of Jesus, we're called to do, Um, called to be discerning agents, thinking through how this is going to um impact us and i think it's even more critical not just to sit there and watch it but as pastors leaders musicians worship leaders those who serve the church to not just quickly import those things into our our liturgy like like we should have been sitting thinking about what does it mean to go on a web stream that should, like, I know COVID was there. I know it's intense, but we should have sat for a few days. Or if a church wasn't engaged in web streaming, there should have been some long, prayerful, discerning conversations. What does it mean for Christ's body in South Minneapolis or North Dallas or Northwest London? Like, what does it mean for us to become a virtual community and again, that's not saying it's wrong or right, yeah, but, no, but reflection to, even the, yeah, even the use of of media I mean throwing the hymnals out and putting putting screens and transparencies up those those are conversations which I am glad in some ways there was some war in congregations like that 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 should be you know again with peace and with joy and with <laughs> the fruit of the spirit like in those conversations but also thinking as we make a shift from sitting reading music singing it from a hymnal to staring at a transparency to now looking at an LED screen with movements and graphics um i'll I'll be really honest yesterday one of our our tech production people just put one of those kind of clouds that was moving around and floating around on the back of our lyrics and glory, glory cloud. Yeah. I mean, charismatics, you know what I'm talking about. I, I was trying to, to speak to a, a more diverse <laughs> group of the body of Christ, but yeah, glory cloud. And uh, in one sense, again, incense has been used in the church for, yeah. for years and it, it reflects, you know, the temple, it reflects heaven. There's nothing wrong with that. But some of the songs we were singing were much more about the earth and the embodiment of what Christ has done right here and now, not about seeing heaven on earth in, in, in a sense of, of a glory cloud, but actually seeing the incarnational Christ at work through his body. Like, and I, I almost wanted images of our town, (laughs) like quality images or videos of kids playing on the playground behind some of the songs, because it, because that aesthetic is powerful. It, it seems slightly more gnostic than an embodied, you know, Christology of Christ at work by the Spirit in,
0: in the hands and feet of his his body. And if you don't actually reflect on that in your church context or whatever you're in a Christian institution like a, a Christian university, if you don't reflect on that, what ends up happening is those implicit connections end up being made, and your theology, your story that you believe about the world ends up being shaped in those directions anyways even if nobody ever explicitly says to you this is you know we might be leaning more towards not a gnostic view of reality nobody says that to you but you end up imbibing it and it comes into you it transforms the elephant maybe even if the writer is not aware of it
1: well i i think on on the flip side one of the beautiful things about the charismatic aesthetic is it's a fully embodied worship experience? Like uh, again, Catholics, Orthodox would have that too, and kneeling and prostration and movement coming forward. You know, no, there were no pews in the church for the first few hundred years because the congregation was mobile, moving to different parts of the room for for acts of worship and prayer, and that's what I love. Like even, even some reformed circles where you can, you can see it, everyone wanting to lift their hands, like grabbing the pew, you know, the or coaster the grip. <laughs> but, but again, it's, it's, it's maybe not a full embodied view of what Christian worship is, you know, proscunio is to kneel down and kiss the hand of, of kind of a king or a, a leader. And that, that, that Greek word that's used in, in the Greek version of the old Testament and new Testament, a a bunch for, for worship is a, is not a, mm, I will now think about God. It's yes, I will think about God, but I'll also do something physically sing or kneel or lift my hands with some other people. And so, yes. I mean, again, these yes. are, these are the basics of our, our rituals, but I think particularly as we've now shifted to so much of Christian um ministry consumed by myself on my cell phone um we could quickly kind of create an even more individualistic faith than we had for the last 200 years where I am now the chief liturgist for my own spirituality and I curate exactly what I want to Two Jason Upton songs, a Brandon Hampton United Pursuit. I want a Tom Wright sermon, um, and then uh, we'll uh, do the examine catch, at the end. The fire Toronto, Toronto altar call, like, come Holy Spirit. Like
0: you just then, described uh, a, a, my ideal church service here, Jeremy. A, a
1: Baptist, <laughs> a Baptist sending to go change the world, and then a a Reformational Monday where all of my work, is, and vocation is is glorifying God, like. That's yeah, we we could go to that. You and I would be okay in that church, but a lot of other people wouldn't. And so I think we can move to that individualism if we're also not, we need to discern about the media, but we, and and our use of, of, of the arts and, and, and see Christ in all things and see where the spirit may not be working. And that isn't beautiful and good. And I, there's a, be honest, there's a few Netflix shows that come to mind that I've watched that like this, if the. If anything it tells us is just about how depraved and dark and broken we are, like there is no hope. Um, but but on the flip side, as we think about bringing and importing acts of cultural mu- music artifacts to to sit there and say, how might this impact our congregation? And I just know, and you've sat in those meetings, like that's not... The conversations in church offices when we're buying an LED screen. Um, it's not the conversation when we're thinking of shifting, should we use some haze this week? Or it's not the conversation around, should we use this illustration from this movie? Should we even sing this song anymore, knowing about the ethics of what's happening in that community and how it may not um, the song itself may be very powerful and moving and tell the story of God, but now that we all know what's going on in that community, is, is that good, noble, you know, kind of the, the ethics side of things, too. So I think we're, we're, we're thinking on so many levels. We're thinking of style, content, um, and even structure of art forms. Um, but we're also starting, I think, more and more to think about ethics of those producing the arts. And that's not just as a church, but as a society. Is it right for someone to be an abusive pastor, even though 10,000 people were baptized? Is it right to be the best apologist we've seen in decades? Um, And I think that's that's where we need to repent, sit in discernment, um, and then begin to dream what it might look
0: like to be a broken but risen community of faith. That's beautiful, Jeremy. I I just want to throw one last question your way before we wrap up. Do you still have time? Yeah, let's do it. Because you've lived in non-Western contexts. You and Angela and your kids. I don't know if you're at liberty to ever say the places where you actually were or not. Um, It it comes to mind that a great benefit of the global Christian church is... um, not used to its full extent when we are not engaging with voices, especially out of the more non-Western paradigms, especially when we think about the arts and reflection. I know you've been to many places of the world, non-Western context, for whatever that means, right? Um, Specifically, let's think of the Muslim world where, um, you know, a lot of the, the narratives that we believe about individualism and these other sorts of things are just not held in the same way. And yet Western American worship music is exported to all of these different places. And I know you've spent a lot of time trying to help those indigenous communities be able to develop contextually appropriate worship, liturgy and aesthetics for their culture um I know you could talk for hours about that but could you just share for a little bit about like the benefits of people that have lived like we have you know predominantly up until your adult years we both grew up in the midwest you know the midwest even has a very different way of reading the world from the east coast and the west coast and the deep south how much more so are those differences when you're in the islamic world or a totally um non-western culture can you share about at least the benefits of, of people getting exposed to that and the value and maybe even a little bit about maybe some of the dangers for people in those contexts if they're just simply always importing western music and liturgical practices without reflection
1: and i yeah i think there's there's two kind of things that quickly come to mind is like particularly since since the 80s the growth of the christian music industry worship industry selling worship pete reward has a great book from about a decade ago he's a practical theologian at durham like that might be helpful for some who are wrestling through this but in some sense those songs began to be picked up all over the globe and and, and in one sense you could say that was because people wanted to make money and um sell albums and get on ccli but the that 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 cynical view I've found is actually not true. Like most of these places don't like if you're leading a house church of Iranians in northern Iraq and singing God is so good or uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God or Vineyards draw me close to you, Vineyard and those writers are not getting a penny from that house church. I mean, they're, they're not, not getting. Su- they're not submitting
0: their CCLI reports, Jeremy. <laughs> there is
1: none, and and so I think. There is this view, even among scholars, like that it's it's been primarily the industry. Now, again, maybe the last ten years that's been more true is there's YouTube monetization and and other things, but which you know, so if someone's watching Upper Room in North Korea, Upper Room may get a few a few cents to that. But the reality is, is that exporting and importing of that music, yes, often was done by westerners serving in those locations and this would be true of the middle east and and also yeah all over the world but there's also it's a term a number of ethnographers use called localization and so it, there is a conscious choice of these these local communities to choose like there is an agency once the missionary leaves they could stop singing shine jesus shine and and draw me close to you but the reality is, is in some of those contexts, I'm writing a, a, a paper for a journal right now on Turkey. And in some of those contexts, that was the most neutral music that could be used for Turks. Like, Interesting.
0: What do you because, mean by neutral?
1: Yeah, because so much of music is connected with cultures and subcultures. Now for us as Americans, we make that huge sacred secular divide, but the rest of the world doesn't,
0: (laughs) or at least different degrees of sacred, right? I mean, there are different connections between that aesthetic and spiritualism or there's
1: certain style within Turkey,
0: you know, there's certain styles of music that are connected
1: with Turkish nationalism. There's certain styles of music that are, you know, that, Kurdish Turks listen to and play. There's certain types that, you know, that only those living in Istanbul would listen to because they're right there on the bridge of, of East and West. And so, I mean, art forms, particularly music, are not universals. They, they're, they're carriers of meaning and culture and language. And so what, what happened, particularly in the, the 2000s, is, is now... Now the ethnographers and ethnodoxologists came to these countries saying, "Please stop singing vineyard. Please stop singing integrity. Um, please play the saws or please play the ood." And well, first they didn't know how to. Like I, you, you know how long? I mean, even to play the guitar well takes. At least a couple of years to play it at a you know a high level where you could be recording music, um, and so to play in a different style and with different modes, with also a different culture around it. And so one of the, one of the people I interviewed felt they were shoving the saws, the Turkish saws, down their throat. Now others within those communities, in those those meetings and discussions around worship and aesthetics, felt released to sing their own song in their own style from the from, from those same kind of conversations. And so that's, again, where, where local churches need to discern and imagine what worship looks like. And here's where you can see I've got a little Baptist ecclesiology in me, like a local community, local elders, leaders that are drawn from, from different parts of the community, like to be able to think, how should we worship and what does it look like to express our love, our devotion and be formed. And so that's where, yeah, where I've been a part of a number of songwriting workshops and even some, you know, kind of visual art. It wasn't a workshop because none of us were really visual artists, but at least kind of pioneering, uh, you know, workshops where we, where we tried to kind of set this out a little bit to think what would these forms look like? How can these local communities bring forth their expressions of love and devotion that reflect who they are and their identity as as a people. And that's that's really beautiful with without saying you singing this Bethel or Hillsong or Graham Kendrick song, that's that's wrong. And you're not Turkish anymore. You're not Arab when you sing that because like colonization them, either way. It's, it's reverse colonization. It's like you need to be more you're not Turkish enough or you're not Arab enough or you're not Kurdish, but it's again a a white missionary saying <laughs> you need to do this and 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 what I hope in the way that we've done it in in conversation is saying here's here's some scripture. Here's some ideas within our culture, and what would those look like in yours, and how might that be? Um, experienced, you know, again, I can. I have quotes of friends in my research of as they hear certain instruments, they think about drinking raka, the kind of Turkish ouzo, like, and sitting at a bar and trying to hook up with girls because that's the style of music. So, some of those same conversations in the 80s with the church, like, those were real stories, like, of people who were, didn't just listen to 1980s or 70s, rock but we're immersed in rock culture the drugs the sex and so as they hear those styles of music now can they be discipled to grow and see Christ in all things and worship in all styles yes but that takes for me it takes months and weeks and years of of studying another art form to actually say oh I quite I quite fancy a, an evening Vespas at, at one of the cathedrals in London. Like it took me a few services and it took me a doctorate in worship to kind of understand, oh, this is really Christ-centered. This is really beautiful. And so I think for us to to just be real about that and then to encourage, whether that's, yeah, in, in another part of the world or even in your local congregation to say, What ingredients do we have, like in our kitchen, and how how can we bring those together? And again, I know I know we're 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 closing here, so we'll we'll get ready for the altar call here in a minute. But like,
0: for pastors, the music team can come up right now (laughs) if if the
1: band can come. um, We'll sing one more song and then and then we're done. Like again, that even that liturgy is is saying that we're done with Christian worship. Like we're done right now, but. but my 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 bigger point was, you know I know of of congregations that had like amazing bassoon players and amazing violinists, but they didn't have a bass player and a drummer, and so they felt their congregation was was musically kind of lacking. and so again i it it takes creativity to think, how can I draw well my my instance right now, in my chapel band. I don't have a guitar player this year. They're in all the other bands. I don't have an acoustic player. So Paul, come and come and play with me sometime. I don't have an electric player. Bring your electric too. But I have a harpist. And so we did a we did Harping a song yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> we, we didn't do that song, but we did a Jeremy Riddle, Fall Afresh. We were, uh, our dean of chapel was preaching on the Holy Spirit and we pulled that out. And so she was doing all this beautiful finger picking on it. And it was a very different feeling than... Jeremy Riddle on his acoustic guitar, but it but it's also thinking. I have an extremely talented senior harpist who's Jesus. She wants to be involved in worship. Who's an expert? Like, how can we utilize her gifts in you know in a modern aesthetic? And it is possible. It takes work. It takes practice. It takes conversations. But there is a space within our local churches to both discern and imagine what, what the art should be. And I guess, yeah, you've got me on my passion. We could do 16 podcasts on this (laughs) one. But like, this is where we also have to be real that if your church has never written a song, you cannot compare their first song that they've written to a place like Hillsong or who's been writing songs for 40 years now. Like that's just, or the Gettys, who's again, been writing for about 40 years. Like you can't take... A song that just came out and, co- and compare. And so I think that's that's the scary thing about you know introducing a brand new song from there's someone's first song in a in a congregation, whether it's in Turkey or whether it's in Minneapolis. Like people are gonna compare it to a song with seven of the greatest writers collaborating together to pull out Living Hope or something yeah. like that. Like Top Notch, mixers, not
0: engineers. Top yeah. notch mastering the budgets yeah. are probably more for their worship and arts department than what a lot of churches have in their their total budget per year. It's yeah. just it's just too difficult.
1: And that 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 means does mean shaping the focus point of a worship service from copying a brand or a sound or just getting more butts in the seats to a compass of discipleship and community. And that's scary for a lot of churches because it may mean some people might leave the church because they're uncomfortable because this new song we're using. And again, that calling might not be for every every community and at every season and every time, but there is a call for what would it look like for us to be a local expression of the body of Christ? What is the sound of our postcode or our zip code? but are the ingredients, the giftings in our, in our local communities. And how can we, can we draw from those and tap? The other is how can we invest in the eight year olds and 10 year olds so that we will have artistic theologians when they're in their twenties and thirties. And um, and I think, yeah, there's a
0: beautiful potential for, for
1: what's happening in the church too right now. Yeah, I fully
0: agree. Without that reflection, um, at least the reflection. The reflection in of itself is a good first step to be thinking about that in Christian institutions. The step that a lot of places are not even taking to take a reflection. (coughs) Pardon me, because it is so much easier to see the results on YouTube. And I look and I go and be like, man, Josh Baldwin, he just nails this tune and we're going to bring it into our church and it's going to have that same effect. And it's not necessarily malevolent intentions you know, or oh. we just, we got to have butts and seats. It's like, well, I see the fruit and I'd like yeah. that fruit too. And so I'm going to put this armor on and it just might be, you only have a slingshot, you know, and, um, uh, and that's good. Uh, and then you get to the very question that we're wrestling with is how, how have we told the story of God a particular way that elevates certain values over others? You know, so does our metric of evaluation become, is it increased giving? Is it increasing attendance? These sorts of very much again American capitalistic frameworks. Or are we really evaluating, you know, potentially whether or not those assumptions are not even the right metrics? And that that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother time, Jeremy, but we gotta have these conversations. And
1: that's that's I guess the shift from the 80s, what I was saying earlier as we were talking to the 90s and today is, again, from the altar call of an individual salvation to branding and individual impressions. And I know that's within church planning and consulting conversations. It's now about, yeah, how many people are looking at your, your church's Instagram and what are those impressions? And and that, that scares me, or at least concerns me a little bit, not, not to not use that, but also to think, is that the primary mission of the local church? And I even think we might have had it better in the 80s, where we were thinking about transformed lives coming forward in yes. community to, oh, we got this video. And yeah, and I think that I'd love to another time take a deep dive into that with you around Kind of current current trends around branding worship and branding churches that that may have some malevolent impact in in the long term life of our
0: churches. Let's have that conversation, Jeremy. This has been a blast. I know people are going to deeply appreciate all that you had to share. Um, and uh, please give our love to Angela and the kids. And uh, next time you guys are, are down, we'll we'll have. We'll have a barbecue or whatever season it is. We'll do something Minnesota appropriate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds amazing.
0: Thanks, Thanks, man. This has been a blast. Well, I hope you found today's conversation insightful and helpful. And I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about maybe what you took out of this conversation, points of agreement and points of disagreement. For each episode, we have a discussion forum on my Patreon page where people can share feedback. We can engage in some dialogue together. You can connect with other listeners across the world and you can grow. You can participate in meaningful discussion and conversation together online in a place that's uh, I think a little bit easier to have healthy exchange, a little bit easier than places like Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram. You can check that out. We've got a discussion forum on my Patreon page This podcast is made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like you over on that Patreon page. This is what keeps this podcast uh, from having advertisements in it, and uh, I can't do it without you guys, so... Thanks to those who have already supported, those that are considering supporting, you can jump in for as little as two bucks a month and participate in the discussion forums. I post a bunch of other helpful resources there. Uh, There's different tiers of rewards for those that may wanna have bonus Q&A episodes or participate in monthly Zoom group discussions. You can check all that out in the link provided. Finally, I wanna give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, BJ, Daniel, Daniel Z, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, and taylor s thank you all for your generous support and encouragement if you found today's episode to be helpful and you'd like to leave a review on apple Podcasts, i certainly welcome that that helps other people discover this program i don't do like advertising or things like that so if people are going to find it it's going to be because you share it or leave a review or do something like that thank you all for listening. I look forward to hearing from you. Maybe you can connect on the Patreon forum, or if you want to reach out to me, you can also find me on Twitter at Paul and Lightner. You can find links to all of that stuff in the description below. Until next time, we'll talk again soon.